Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast the podcast where we're not just learning about the newest breakthroughs in science and plant genetic improvement, animal genetic improvement, medicine, but we're also learning about how to talk about them with a skeptical public. And uh, my name is Kevin Fulta. Um, I'm a professor. I'm a scientist. I have an active research program. And my third full-time job is going out and talking to people about science. And I'm very glad that you've listened to this today because today marks a um, milestone in talking biotech history. Today, we'll have someone out there, we'll have the 200,000th download. And uh, for that, you will win a podcast about pigs. And I wanted to joke with my uh, guest today so bad. I, 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 the whole during the whole interview, I'm thinking somewhere you gotta sneak in Jurassic pork, gotta sneak it in, and I didn't, so blew it. But um, today's guest is uh, Dr. Bruce Whitelaw from the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland. And the Roslyn Institute is the place that's famous for Dolly the Sheep and Helen Sang, our uh, guest on episode number seven, and a variety of other scientific endeavors that have to do with genetic improvement in animals. Now, this is especially important because the genetic improvements are coming from gene editing, or this CRISPR-Cas9 system. And if you don't know this, please get acquainted with it because it will be defining what's happening in the future of biotechnology and is the newest edge in precision improvement of plants, animals, and as we saw last week, fungus uh, with the mushroom. In episode two, we spoke with Dr. Allison Van Enenem about gene editing in cattle and how they were able to change a transcription factor so that dairy cows would not grow horns. They could get around the process of polling, where they have to physically remove or scoop out the tissues that would lead to horns in a mature animal. In the future, we'll talk about double muscling in livestock, also a CRISPR-mediated change in genes that causes them to gain more mass, uh, more muscle mass. 
which could have tremendous capacity to change the way different meat is produced in animals. Now again, all of this is done with the newest technology in gene editing. And it allows scientists to make these precise changes in existing genes. It's like we're using a word processor to edit DNA. Um, it's kind of like once I had a grant proposal um, that had the autocorrect on there, and uh, and <laughs> I had a typo. Instead of transgenic plants, it said transgender pants, and uh, that was I, I left it in. <laughs> um, it didn't get funded. Uh, and in the review of the proposal, it said that they wouldn't fund it until I had evidence of matching shoes in a decent handbag. So, <laughs> touche. Uh, teach me one. Uh, but thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. This is a wonderful interview today and really hope you like it. Thank you again for listening. Today on Talking Biotech, we'll talk about swine and some of the breakthroughs that are occurring at the Rosalind Institute over in Edinburgh in the UK. And with us today, we have Dr. or Professor Bruce Whitelaw. And Professor Whitelaw is the Genus Chair of Biotechnology at the Rosalind Institute, also the head of a central research division in that institute. And uh, you may recall from previous that we've spoken with Helen Sang from uh, the Rosalind Institute, a place that has uh, quite a history with respect to the way that animals can be, or, well, many organisms, but particularly breakthroughs in animals that uh, really can influence down the road um, agriculture and food production. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Whitelaw. Glad to be on it. Could you start off by telling us about um, the particular problem? What 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 is the problem of African swine fever, and uh, why? What are the symptoms, and how bad is it? So, at Rosalind, we are keen to use some of the new technologies to look at livestock diseases, diseases uh, that currently are not treated by drugs, or we don't have either available or effective vaccines and one of them is a disease called African swine fever caused by a virus uh, it infects pigs and pigs that are susceptible to this disease uh, go into a cytokine storm status leading to massive hemorrhage and die within five to ten days and the how disease itself sorry the disease itself is uh, obviously with a name like African swine fever. The disease itself is prevalent in Africa, but is spread um, by uh, soft ticks and uh, can also lie dormant in processed meat for perhaps even up to a year. And, and either through the, the spread of ticks or by the um, uh, uh, disposal of, of uh, processed meat, the disease is now uh, endemic in Eastern Europe um, and parts of Russia and the old Soviet Union. Yeah, I've read about some of the outbreaks in Poland and um, maybe uh, Lithuania, and uh, it really is a major problem in some of these areas. It, it is, and, and previous to this outbreak, well, it's no longer an outbreak, it really is endemic. Previous to this, uh, the disease was only thought to spread by the soft tick uh, and occasionally 
the winds of Africa would blow this into Europe and we'd have small outbreaks, which a uh, European farming community dealt with by cull. But uh, it now appears that some processed meat was discarded, probably from a ship that came into the Black Sea maybe nearly 10 years ago. And from there, it is now spread, uh, as you said, into vast areas of of uh, uh, Western uh, Russia and associated countries like Ukraine um, and now in, in Eastern Europe. The Perhaps the complicating factor in, in those this, that part of the world is we have a, a population of wild boar that uh, exists there and it is possible that the, the wild boar species is helping the spread of, of this disease. Um, but it is slowly stepping, you know, it's slowly marching uh, uh, westwards through Europe um, and the, the, the farming communities in Europe are quite worried about this. It is not only um, Europe that suffered from this virus. Uh, in the past, there has been outbreaks within the um, Central America, Caribbean area, um, and uh, America is not uh, immune um, to the potential of it appearing. And because we have no vaccine, because we have no way of treating it beyond cull, once it appears in a country, unless uh, that, that, that area has an absence of wild pigs, uh, it will spread. Um, thankfully, the virus only infects pigs, but unfortunately, when it does, um, at least in the majority of animals on the planet, pig animal, pigs on the planet, it will kill them. But it, it doesn't seem to affect the wild pigs. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the boar. Are the uh, the boars just a repository of the virus that then can spread to domesticated populations, or are they affected as well? They are affected as well. Um, and the the proximity of animals leads to a rapid spread, which sort of overcomes the fact that the disease is so rapid in its effect. But if a wild boar was to be infected out in the woods and die from this, the actual meat of that boar would still be infected for some considerable time, perhaps up to a year. And in fact, within pigs, and this is very much a gross over some but um, we have uh, three types of pigs on the planet. We have very ancient ones that live in Indonesia called the Babarusa, a very um, ornate animal with multiple tusks and hair. Um, we have Africans, uh, uh, African pigs, and indigenous pigs in Africa like the bush pig or, or the warthog, and you have everything else, be it a, a large white, a wild boar, a mini pig, be it black, be it white, be it brown. Um, and unfortunately, this virus, uh, when it infects one of the anything else, uh, will kill it. And it's only the African pigs that appear to have some level of resilience to this virus. They're not resistant. They tolerate it. It is possible that all pigs in Africa are seroconverted for this virus. And so that really ties in with the approach that your group has taken, that you know, what is it that makes these African warthogs not develop the same symptom spectrum, at least the same penetrance of the of the presentation of the disease that you see in domestic pigs. And what is it that that's true about them that uh, that you've uncovered? Well, that's exactly the approach. We knew that the the virus was the same, but the host must differ genetically um, uh, in its response to that virus. So, so we we 
colleagues here in the United Kingdom um, were looking at proteins that the virus encoded, specifically proteins that the virus produced, which suppressed the immune system of the, of the infected animal. One of those proteins goes by the very unelegant name of A238L. Um, and when we, we looked at this protein, it structurally resembled uh, a factor which is common or present within the immune signaling pathways. And, and specifically, this was a, a protein factor and what's called the NF-kappa-B signaling pathway. Now, NF-kappa-B is a nuclear transcription factor which um, drives the expression of most, uh, certainly most immune genes at one time or another. So, so here we had a, a, a viral protein which looked like the repressor the, the, of, of this pathway. Um, so we then looked at genes encoding the various proteins in the NFB pathway in pigs. And we took samples from your production pigs that you'll see on your farm, your large white or your land race type animal. And we took samples from African pigs, the bush pig and the warthog. And we sequenced um, uh, these genes. And for the, for the initial part of this project, it was quite downhearting because when we sequenced these genes, they were all exactly the same. And uh, the PhD student I had on the project kept coming to me saying, Bruce, I'm not sure this is such a good project after all. Um, but, but then we hit the, what I believe is the, the jackpot. We, we came across a, a, a gene called RELA, um, uh, encodes for a protein called P65. And P65 is one of the major components of the dimeric NF-kappa-B transcription factor. So here we had a mutation in a protein central to the signaling pathway that the, the virus actively suppressed in the animal. Um, when we looked a little bit closer at the sequence, not only was there this, um, and, and it was like a barcode. If, if you looked at sequences, any sequence from a, from a, a, a warthog or bush pig, there was one sequence there. If you looked at the sequence from any other pig uh, that we could get our hands on at the time, um, there was another sequence. You, you could differentiate based on this one gene where in the world, or you could differ, you could identify whether the animal was African or not. Um, and, and when we looked at the sequence in a bit more detail, uh, it, it, it was a part of the, the, the protein which uh, included an amino acid which was phosphorylated. Now, phosphorylation is one of the primary ways of regulating nuclear transcription factors. More than that, we know in the human uh, P65 protein um, that that site or the equivalent site is involved in regulating the activity of NF-kappa-B. So here we had a mutation in a gene which we know that the virus interacts with and a mutation uh, that uh, was at a site which we know should be involved in regulating the activity of that, that gene, that, that protein. Um, and we hypothesized that that would therefore regulate the NF level of NF-kappa-B activity in pigs. And so maybe just to distill this down for the audience members that uh, understand the science but aren't molecular biologists, they, the basic idea is that this NF-kappa-B signaling pathway, this is conserved across across mammals, or is this uh, how far does this go in terms of uh, fungi, or where else do we find NF-kappa-B? 
doesn't quite go down to the lower life forms, but most of the uh, uh, vertebrate species, um, if not all of the vertebrate species, will carry uh, NF-kappa-B. Okay, and so NF-kappa-B is a pivotal transcription factor. As most people know, this is a kind of protein that regulates basically whether you can turn on or turn off a gene, to say it in lay language, that essentially binds DNA through specific sequences or binds proteins that are, te- that are binding DNA to regulate whether or not that gene is turned on or turned off. And in this case, NF-kappa-B has a, uh, in the warthog, has a specific mutation that changes the way it's phosphorylated or the way other enzymes would add a phosphate group to that or phosphoryl group to um, modulate its activity. So it's basically a decoration on the protein that changes the way it behaves. And um, in this case, this enzyme from the, the, from the warthog or bush pig is missing that particular, has a mutation in the sequence that provides that site for that modification that changes its activity. Does that seem to fit pretty good? That's perfect. Okay. Absolutely perfect. Okay, so that so basically it's it's and this is really common. I mean we see this all over evolution that here's a here obviously this pig survives is very strong selection pressure on being able to tolerate a viral infection and uh, obviously this particular mutation uh, may have been the basis for the selection. But now you have these multiple pools of pigs, uh, you know, this uh, warthog and then the domestic pig, and why can't you just breed them together and maybe transfer that gene that way? So we use the the word pig in in common language for uh, a whole variety of of animals which are actually different species. Ah, Um, There are a variety of pig species, and the bush pig and warthog are unable to interbreed between themselves because they're different species. And obviously, they are different species to our production animals that we have. I mean, the similarity between the, the bush pig or the warthog and the domestic pig is somewhere in the range of us to marmosets. Oh, wow. I See, I would have never have guessed that. I thought these were all... Uh, you know, they all have very uh, similar body morphology, and they, you know, they all. I would have guessed, you know, that we just domesticated these, uh, uh, you know, very <laughs> rough-looking, uh, you know, tusks and boars and things like that. That we just domesticated those things, and maybe that was what we were looking at. But they're a whole different species. Whole different species, yes. Okay, so how do you make a transgenic, or, or how do you do genetic engineering in a pig? I mean, we've talked about plants before and bacteria and yeast, but how do you do this in a mammal? So, um, our approach is to manipulate the zygote, the fertilized egg, and we deliver the the the, the tool into that zygote. Um, we isolate oocytes from donor animals. Um, or from slaughterhouse material, and we fertilize that at our experimental farm, and then we micro-inject into that fertilized zygote the tool to do the genetic engineering. Now, genetic engineering is quite a broad term, and traditionally, and I suspect most people listening to this uh, perceive it as a a transgene, or where you take a, a gene from one source and you put that into the genome of another another organism uh, in an additive manner. Um, and, and certainly that type of approach has been successful. And we've recently seen the first transgenic animal be 
uh, regulated such that it could enter into the food chain with the aqua advantage uh, salmon, the aqua bounty, aqua advantage salmon, which is transgenic. So it has this extra gene in there. The new tools we have allow us to edit the genome. And they are called genome editors for that reason. And what this allows us to do in, in, a, in a genome is go in and very precisely change the sequence at our target locus. So these editors are proteins, and we deliver them as an RNA, which the cell then translates to, to make the protein the functional protein. And we deliver the, the, the RNA to the zygote, our fertilized egg, and translation happens uh, in the cytoplasm, and the protein migrates to the nucleus uh, and causes the effect. And, and that effect is exactly the effect that you have now prescribed in the newly edited cell. So and that, let's take a break right there, Professor Whitelaw. Um, we're speaking today with Professor Bruce Whitelaw from the Roslyn Institute at the University of Edinburgh, and we'll be right back with more Talking Biotech. This week marks a milestone in Talking Biotech history as someone out there will be the 200,000th download. That's pretty exciting. And when we look at the numbers, there are more downloads every week. Except for that coffee or papaya one, those went off the charts. Now lots of you ask, what can I do to help? And the answer is still the same. Tell a friend. Write a review on iTunes. Or run down the street in your town naked, screaming Talking Biotech Podcast. I did that, and soon a number of law enforcement and mental health care professionals were acquainted with the podcast. And now, our loyal listeners. It's all about sharing the stories of science, and how technology can help people and the planet. So thank you again for listening, and now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Professor Bruce Whitelaw from the Roslyn Institute. And we're speaking about CRISPR-edited pigs, how an allele from warthogs or from uh, wild pigs has been brought into the domesticated pig to help alleviate issues associated with African swine fever virus. So, Professor Whitelaw, what can you tell us about these gene editing technologies? Uh, if, if, if I may just go into the, these genome editors in a little bit more detail. Sure, sure. We, we have them in different flavors. And they have different names. They're zinc finger nucleases, they're talons, and they're now what's called the CRISPR-Cas9. And the, the CRISPR-Cas9 is the one that's igniting the world with excitement about how broadly applicable this tool is. In effect, they all do the same thing. They do it in different ways, but they all do the same thing. And that is they, they have the ability to recognize a specific sequence within the genome, one sequence in the genome. And they then function like a molecular scissor where they cut the DNA. They are endonucleases in, in their enzyme activity. So they'll cut the DNA directed at that very specific site. Now, DNA damage or DNA ends is bad news for a cell. It triggers a whole cascade 
of uh, mechanisms to repair it. Otherwise, the cell would slowly uh, progress into cell death and, and be destroyed. And, and the reason why we have horrible diseases such as cancer, where cells grow uncontrollably, is that these processes have been uh, overcome and, and, and altered. Um, so, so natural processes exist in every cell to repair DNA damage. So once this genome editor cuts the DNA, causing the, uh, usually causing a double-strand break in, in the DNA, these processes come into play. Now, they're very good, and they, they, they're good enough to keep most of us alive uh, for, for many decades, but they do make mistakes. And those mistakes are what we capture uh, in, in the first uh, strategy that we have. So the genome editor will cut at the site you want, the repair will come in, and it'll make a mistake. It'll either put in a small insertion or a small deletion. We call that an indel for insertion and deletion. Um, we cannot control what that indel will be. It might be one base deletion, it might be a six base addition, or, or so on. But we can determine exactly where it is. Now, if if that target site is within the coding region of a gene, which is governed by what are called um, the uh, tri -ba uh, three base codon structure, it causes uh, a frame shift if it's not a multiple of three. And that frame shift will invariably cause a truncation of the protein. So we can go in with these molecular scissors, cut where we want, and the result will be, by this error-prone um, um, repair mechanism, will be a truncated protein. That process is called non-homologous end-joining. The other approach we've got, which is even more elegant, is where we put in to this mix a DNA template carrying the sequence of choice. Invariably, that DNA template is used by the repair mechanism to repair the double-strand break. And in doing so, you can create a mutation of your choice at your site of choice. In this case, in, in that strategy, homology-directed repair strategy, what we're trying to do is change the sequence of our target gene. So in the case of our RELA, we've used both approaches. We've generated a truncated uh, RELA protein. And we have changed the sequence uh, of the RELA gene at the target site to carry what is the warthog sequence, or in, in genetic terms, it's called an allele. Yeah, so just uh, maybe I'll help step this back for other uh, listeners as well, is that you know this idea of gene editing is great because for those of us who remember a set of encyclopedias, it was this set of, what, 30 different books that all had all this information before you had the Internet. And you can think about a transgenic approach, like you mentioned, the salmon or many different plants, is maybe adding a new chapter to one of those books and just adding or, you know a few paragraphs to one of those books. Gene editing allows you to change the letter E to the letter A in one of those sentences, in one word. It's a precise, very specific approach that really is changing and revolutionizing our thinking about the way we're going to induce genetic variation. And really what your approach did is use this kind of guided template approach 
that allowed this CRISPR-Cas9 system to essentially take the domesticated pig and provide it with the warthog sequence. So now the sequence that makes the warthog asymptomatic because of the modification to NF-kappa B is now resident in the domesticated pig. And so do I have that all right? You have that correct. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure I get it right so that uh, others, uh, uh, when they ask me later, you know, we get this get this right on. So, um, the, but, so the change is, is really pretty small then. You said just a single base that maybe would change that phosphorylated... It's a serine. Serine. So the difference between the African warthog and the bush pig are three amino acids. So we've created uh, three base changes to change all three amino acids. We're also in the process of just changing the uh, serine, which we think is perhaps the most important. We have tried some in vitro cell culture studies to look at the different activity of these mutations. And they each seem to, of these three mutations, they, they at least in uh, a very simple cell culture assay, they all seem to have some sort of activity, or the majority of the activity is associated with the serine. So in the animals that we have on the ground just now, we have changed those three amino acids and just those three amino acids. <laughs> and I love how you say the animals on the ground. So you do actually, so this has worked so far. You have animals produced by this process. Yeah, we, we have, we have a, a series of animals. Um, we've used both the homology directive repair and the NHEJ approach. So we have animals with a truncated or shorter version of the protein which takes completely or removes completely the distal transactivation domain where this site exists we've also got animals that have the three amino acid change and we're in the process of making animals which have um, a single amino acid change oh very good and have they been tested for the disease yet not yet um, so the the we, the animals we have a uh, Generated, we generated the truncated animals a couple of years ago now. They're now being bred up for a test cohort. The issue with this is we're, we have to go through two generations to ensure that we have got enough animals to do the testing. Mm. Um, and with the case of the amino acid changes, we're just at the first generation. So we're still a good 12 months away from... Uh, challenging those animals, which are the ones that we're most excited about. The ones, the, the deleted, the truncated rally, we'll be testing those later this year. And so what, what has the public um, perception of this been? Because I've seen some play in the popular press and some discussion of this, and nobody seems to be too upset about this. And I think with the, uh, with the depth of the disease... And the uh, you know the spreading of the disease, it would seem this would be really welcome that people would be throwing money at you to get this out faster. But what has the response been? Well, the response has been from the money perspective. The response has been positive in that we have got both public and private funding uh, to pursue this project and other similar projects. And there certainly is within the United Kingdom uh, an interest in exploring how this these uh, genome editing technology can be um, uh, utilized for the benefit of society. The same is true in the U.S., and there are a number of projects there um, uh, that are progressing uh, with both uh, fusion of 
public and private funding. From the case of the public, um, I think the public are certainly intrigued with the this, these new tools from the perspective that they are precise, they change just single bases, and we we all have different mutations and carry different versions of genes, so there's nothing different about that. I think the fact that, certainly for the CRISPR-Cas9 version of the genome editor, the, the, the ease of its use means that most molecular labs, most universities um, around the world now are using the CRISPR tools. They are cheap to, to buy, to make, and very quick. And that ease of use has led to a huge range of types of applications, including discussions about whether we should ever edit the germline of human beings. And this gives the whole field a huge profile. And I think there's a momentum behind that which is very positive. And the stories and the uh, scientific stories, the, the studies and reports that are coming out uh, are all showing the power and positive impact that this technology can have. Now, the other aspect of, of the work that we're doing here, and I think we benefit from that as a research organization, but I think the realization that society can benefit um, if, we, if, if our hypothesis is correct that these genes are involved in diseases. It's the fact that we're actually trying to alleviate some of the distress that goes through animals. When, when there's an outbreak of African swine fever, yes, the, the pig is killed and, and disposed of by, by burning in some way or other, but there's a human being that has to kill that pig. So there's a, there's a welfare uh, impact on, on the animals themselves, obviously, um, but there's also a, a welfare impact on, on the individuals doing this process. So I think the fact that we're looking at something which should alleviate stress um, both to the animal and to the, the farming community is seen as a positive thing. Now, having said all that, we are still in a hypothesis situation. We predict, um, and I've given you the basis of the argument for why we think mutations in relay might be helpful. And we will challenge the animals to try and determine if that is correct. It is possible the hypothesis is wrong. That's what a hypothesis is about. We, we might find that this gene is not the one that is leading to the dramatic difference in um, uh, sensitivity to this virus between different pig species. Or indeed, we might find it is uh, beneficial from the point of view of the infection with this virus, but it could actually affect other traits that the animal uh, has that would be uh, undesirable um, either to the animal um, or to, to the farming community. So we're on a journey. Well, that is an excellent point because NF-kappa B, I, you know, I, I'm not that familiar with the animal literature around uh, that particular protein. I remember looking at it a lot back when I was studying molecular biology back in the 90s. But uh, you could assume that a uh, rather pervasive transcription factor that's critical to development, because NF-kappa B even plays a role in early, um, uh, as, as I recall, even has an early role in um, pattern formation in the developing zygote, as I recall. But um, there could be uh, other collateral effects, and you won't know until the uh, animals are tested and on the ground. 
No, you're absolutely right, and and obviously one of the mainstream approaches of molecular geneticists and working with the mouse is to knock out genes, and uh, this gene really has been knocked out of the mouse genome, and the result is embryonic lethality. Yeah. Mm. So we we were quite no, we're not knocking the gene out. We're just tweaking its activity level. But you know this this was a real risk when we started the study and. We now have viable animals. We have third-generation viable animals. They appear to reproduce um, uh, normally. Hmm. We have not seen any disease, um, uh, albeit the animal numbers are still low, but we've not seen any increase in, in disease or any other impairment on the animal so far. Um, now, again, this is perhaps one of the real powers of the genome editors, where you can destroy the activity of a gene. You can destroy the gene completely. But it's more powerful when you just change the allele, just tweak it slightly, such that maybe it's slightly more active or slightly less active. And and the genome editors give us that ability. Well, that's really, and that's what's nice about this, is because you're not just making uninformed changes in a, in a protein to make changes and see what they do. You're letting evolution guide you. You're looking at the blueprints from a warthog that can survive this, and then testing the hypothesis that the same change in a domestic pig background will confer the same trait. And it worked great with the polled cows, where they can eliminate the horn gene. Um, That's right. Looks pretty good, and when these cases of double muscling and some of those cases, which um, have also been, well, will be guests on the podcast as well. Um, and for me, I work in an octoploid organism. I work in a, in a strawberry plant, which has... Uh, you know, you're looking at four complete sets of chromosomes, or well, eight, you know, sets of chromosomes, and their CRISPR-Cas9 gives you the capacity to be able to induce um, alleles throughout all of the homologous chromosomes that you would take years to do with breeding. And so, this is a technology that I, I'm so happy that you joined me today because I want people to get more excited about the good things we can do with the newest technologies and why these are so enabling. The scientific community is just fully engaged with certainly the CRISPR-Cas9. And every month, every week, we hear of multiple publications in the scientific press leading to improvements, versions that will give less off-target or different things. And, and we're not at the end of the journey yet. These tools are a revolution in molecular genetics, and they're just going to get better and better. The other aspect is... It leads to the scientific, or it leads to people conceiving new strategies of how we might um, augment the genetics of animals and, and, and organisms, be that a plant or a, 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 an animal. Um, and again, we're seeing vast approaches, vast array of different approaches coming out. It is, I can't underestimate it to your audience, how revolutionary this tool is. This is one of those things that I think we'll look back on this, and that's what's so cool about putting a podcast online, is that you know sometime in 20 years you and I will sit together and talk about this day and how we were watching the infancy of a revolution begin and talking about it in its very first iterations, and I, I, I really do believe that. Yeah, I, I look forward to that day. And maybe one other question is, do you uh, work on a semi-daily basis in this, around uh, Helen Sang? Um, Helen's, um, I'm the head of the division that Helen's in. She, her office is about 
15 feet from mine. So, yes. <laughs> and, and I appreciate your metric conversion for the uh, <laughs> typical U.S. audience. <laughs> I, I speak in both languages, being a scientist. But um, Helen was a guest back on Episode 7. And Professor Sang was just uh, such a pleasure to talk to about the, her innovations in the uh, um, avian influenza. And so if well, you could absolutely. give her our best regards. I certainly will do. I mean, the, the African Swine Fever is the project which has caught the media because we've published most in it. But we're looking at a number of diseases, and, and we're, we're working closely with Helen and other colleagues with uh, influenza. That's wonderful. And, and please don't hesitate to, you know, let me be a microphone for you because uh, I really just, I've always adored the work that goes on there. I hope to visit there someday, but... Just the uh, the work that all of you are doing is amazing, and I'm, I'm so excited to read the website, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you. If people um, wanted to learn more about the Roslyn Institute, um, where would they look? Well, the first place to come is to our website. To find out specifically about the African Swine Fever Project, just look through some of the news items that we've got attached to the current website. Perfect. Okay, thank you so much. So that's Professor Bruce Whitelaw. He's the head of the Division of Developmental Biology at the Roslyn Institute, at uh, in, um, in that's in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland. <laughs> Always have trouble with that one. But thank you <laughs> so much for joining us today on Talking Biotech Podcast. Glad to speak to you. And that brings to an end number thirty-seven in the Talking Biotech series. And thank you very much to Professor Whitelaw, who is, uh, just gives us such a beautiful description of how this technology works. And why it's exciting to me is because here's a case where animals that suffer and die from disease, uh, how that disease can be prevented um, by a simple tweak in a single few bases of that genetic code. This is a great example of how these technologies can work. Uh, not just for people, not just for the planet, but for pigs. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C O L A B R A dot A P P.